As human beings, we experience the world in a mediated way through our five explicit senses, through sight, hearing, smell, taste, and touch. And we take these senses and the sense impressions they give for granted. We don't think too much about how we see, and hear, and smell, taste, or touch until they're not working as well as they did before. And we don't even not think about them. We also completely entrust, uh, almost implicitly trust them. We've all accepted how seeing is believing, hearing is believing, touching is believing, tasting is believing, and smelling is believing. And we should marvel at our senses and how we are able to uh, apprehend the world through them, and in that way give glory to God our Creator, as David does in Psalm 139. But we also do well to critically consider these senses, why God has made them and us that way, and uh, what the design of our senses may reveal to us about their these limitations, and to see the range of ways in which these sense impressions and the way that we sense the world end up <clears throat> getting woven into the story of Scripture and how uh, the God has made himself known to us. And today we consider our sense of hearing. In 1 Corinthians 12, 16 and 17, uh, Paul says, And if the ear says, Since I am not an eye, I am not part of the body, it does not lose its membership in the body because of that. If the whole body were an eye, what part would do the hearing? If the whole were an ear, what part would exercise the sense of smell? Hearing is done through the ear. But to begin with, we need to understand what, 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 what are we hearing. Well, everything that we consider sound is really vibration. Vibration is movement in air that moves molecules in a chain reaction until all the energy is expended, and that all is causing these vibrations. And our ears and our brains are able to process some of these vibrations as perceptible sound. The slower the vibration, the lower the pitch. Human minimum is 20 vibrations per second. A vibration per second is done in hertz. And so it's 20 hertz. The higher the vibration, the higher the pitch. And the human maximum for hearing is about 20,000 vibrations per second, or 20,000 hertz. That dogs and cats can hear at even higher vibrations, and porpoises have the maximum such hearing at 150,000 hertz. So considerably higher uh, than the human uh, ear is able to perceive. Musical notes all have a fixed hertz rate. So for instance, C4, which is the basic C note, is 261.63 hertz. And our understanding of music, really, there's all these different hertz vibrations that attune to the various notes. And the ear maintains many mechanisms by which to receive these sound vibrations and then to translate them into electrical signals. The shape of our outer ears, we all think, is funky, right? But it's designed to funnel and direct vibrations, uh, sound waves, into our ear canals. Those vibrations cause our eardrum to vibrate. Then there are the three tiny bones, the smallest bones in your body or in your middle ear, which amplify those sound waves. And those amplified sound waves then enter into the inner ear and into what's called the cochlea. It's a small organ that's filled with fluid. And the movement of the fluid caused by these vibrations set off 25,000 nerve endings that are present. And each one of those are connected to a hair cell that detects sounds. And these nerve endings translate the vibration of those sound waves at their various pitches into the electrical signals, which are carried by the brain to the by the auditory nerves. The louder the sound, the more the vibration, moving more hairs and stimulating more nerves. Now, the brain receives such electrical signals 
and then works to translate them into what we understand as hearing. And scientists are learning how the auditory cortex processes the sound sense impression from the ears. But the brain seems to first consider the loudness and the pitch, then moves to what is deemed higher level functions to consider the source of the sound and the identity of that which produced the sound. It would also seem the auditory cortex has some neurons that respond selectively to music versus language or environmental sounds. Now, the brain is quite active in this auditory processing and its preference. We perceive it as focusing on certain sounds, quote-unquote, hearing certain things while, quote-unquote, not hearing others. Consider the experience when you are focusing on something while someone tries to talk to you. Your words are being said, right? But no processes is going on. You can probably hear that words are coming out, maybe, but you're not actually focusing on them. It's because the brain can only focus on so much at once. It's a reminder that we are creatures, we are finite. Our brain power, while extensive, is yet still finite. Uh, we are not at the God level of hearing, so to speak. And all of this, by the way, assumes that our brain is able to well capture and understand what we are hearing. Our hearing is not as strong as our sight, both in comparison with other senses and also with other, with other animals. We have all experienced a lot more auditory confusion than, say, visual confusion. Uh, it's much easier for us to say, hey, can you repeat what you said as opposed to can I see it again, right? It, it, it's very different in the way that that gets handled. And there's another huge controversy uh, when it comes to hearing. It was the Yanny or Laurel controversy of 2018. Again, if you were online, you probably remember the Yanny or Laurel uh, it was a given audio clip that when played sounded like Yanny to some and to others it sounded like Laurel. The audio clip really was featuring students recording the word Laurel with a lot of background noise. And this de demonstrates how our brain does audio filtering. Uh, if you filter out the higher pitches and you leave the lower pitch sound, you're going to hear Laurel. But if your brain is uh, filtering out some of the lower pitches and focus on the higher pitch sound, you're going to hear Yanny. Lower playback of the clip can emphasize the Yanny sound, while the faster playback will emphasize the Laurel sound. And that's just as an example that our brain also is, is not just objectively picking up whatever sounds, it's objective, it's working and doing some subconscious filtering, trying to process what it is that it is, it is hearing. And over time, the hairs and nerves of the cochleus can short circuit, and this leads to a loss of hearing, especially at the higher pitches. Uh, if you've been take, partaking of a lot of loud music, that's, you can tell that the higher sounds are the ones that go first. There is a very annoying and sometimes debilitating condition of tinnitus. And it is believed that tinnitus is not actually anything a person is, any vibrations going on. It is, in fact, the brain making a sound because it's not getting the nerve input from certain levels of sound anymore. And therefore, it assumes it's missing something. And so it's coming up with a sound, which is the sound that we hear of the ringing going on. Indeed, it is kind of the uh, Awoken at Bird song, which is even fainter sounding in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 4. So that is how the mechanics of sound and hearing works. And it really is a marvel. In Isaiah 6, 3 and 4, Isaiah chronicles his vision of heaven, that they called out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of heaven's armies. His majestic splendor fills the entire earth. The sound of their voices shook the door frames, and the temple was filled with smoke. So what is going on with this marvel that we generally take for granted of sound and hearing? 
Because we live in a creation of wash and vibration. And that there are vibrations of certain frequencies that we can hear and that we can infuse them with meaning and they are able to facilitate communication of information. One of the great pleasures when it comes to listening is that of music. And in music, we get a glimpse of the perichoretic relational unity, which marks the unity of the divine and the intended unity of all believers, as we can see in John 17, 20 through 21, that we all would be one as God and, this, and Jesus are one. And music has been a big part of humanity's sense of art and culture and meaning throughout time and culture. I mean, we have instruments dating incredibly uh, far back into time, and we see that Cultures around the world have developed some kind of rituals and some kind of experiences of music. Now, music will involve aesthetics, right? There, there's, a, there's no objective formula necessarily that's going to tell you exactly what uh, makes something sound good. But the aesthetic, what we appreciate as beauty in music, is not chaos entirely. There are established orders, patterns, and rules that make what our ears find, or, or our brains find, as pleasing sounds. Now, each uh, when we look at a cappella singing or instrumental uh, music, uh, we can consider how it works because each instrument or voice creates sound vibrations. We can hear a whole collection of instruments and/or voices, and what that is is a, a song on the radio. Uh, a symphony that we're listening to, an opera we're watching, or even just when we come together and as a congregation of the Lord's people and sing, uh, we are hearing a whole collection of these instruments and or voices. And what's going on is that the vibrations that each is, is expelling forth uh, is interpenetrating with one another in the auditory environment, in the area where that sound is being made. And the, all of those different sound waves are then bouncing into our ears and being processed by the cochlea in our brain. And then we hear the collection. We hear the sound of the symphony, the song, the singing together. And there's mutual interpenetration of those vibrations. That's how we're hearing it. But the mutual interpenetration of those vibrations don't diminish their individual sound. Even when we hear a symphony or a song, we can pick out, oh, there's the violin line. Oh, there is the bass line. Oh, here is the, the, the tenor, here is the melody. And we can even pick out individual voices or maybe an individual instrument being played. So even though those vibrations are interpenetrated, right, of the sound waves being expressed by the way those instruments are being played or the, or the voices being used, they do not lose their individual distinctiveness. They are still individually distinct, even though they are interpenetrating. And that's how music is perichoretic. It is mutual interpenetration without loss of distinctive identity. And therefore, God has always expected his people to come together in praise and lament and exhortation through shared participation in music. That was part of the what is being offered to God in the temple, was the Levites and their instruments and the singing, chanting, however that worked, of the Psalms. Uh, and in Christ, the shared participation, and it's not the performance that's ultimately the point, that one of the most power, profound, powerful, and visceral manifestations of our relational unity is our ability to share in a message of praise, lamentation, or exhortation, and song. And that is why we are speaking to one another in these songs teaching and admonishing one another in Psalm 10, the spiritual songs, in Ephesians 5, 19, and Colossians 3, and verse 16. Now, it, and it's 
the idea of the performance concept that you have from a choir or a band is is anathema to this because you're creating the distinctions between believers again. You're not really showing perichoretic relational unity in those situations. The real relational unity comes when each person is bringing their voice to bear on the whole. And we can hear each individual voice, and yet we can also hear the collection of the voices. And it's a very profound thing that we experience maybe once, twice a week, maybe not even think twice about. But it is a profound demonstration of, of what God is accomplishing in Jesus manifest in a very powerful way in song. And notice the unifying aspect of that singing, uh, how music shared together creates a, a kind of shared bond. Uh, that's why we go to concerts and enjoy a band or a symphony with our fellow appreciators. That's why when you see people going off to war or you've got a protest, they will sing the same song. It's a song of solidarity. It's, it's creating those bonds. There's something very powerful going on there, and it's not a coincidence. It's absolutely part of the design as intended. In Genesis 1 and verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And we can focus on that and see how a light is the first created thing leading to what we can visually see. But light was created by God speaking. God said, let there be light. And in Psalm 33 and verse 9 the psalmist testifies that he spoke and it came into existence. He issued the decree and it stood firm. Which shows us that the fact that Genesis author just says, and God said, let there be, and there was, is not just some kind of, oh, this is kind of a fun framing. This is the way we're going to do it. Uh, we're, we're not going to use God, moved his hands around and created. It's God spoke. Well, there's a lot that the psalmist is making out of this. The idea that God spoke all things into existence. And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was fully God. The Word was with God in the beginning. All things were created by him, and apart from him, not one thing that was created that has been created. In John 1, 1 through 3. And in the Word there is light and life, as he will continue to say in verse 4. But he who is light and life is the Word. And again, is this, this is some kind of idle framing or philosophical speculation by John? Absolutely not. It's very theologically motivated. And we see it interlaced throughout the gospel he tells. In John 6, having fed the 5,000 uh, and them asking about the fact that Moses brought forth you know, bread out of the wilderness, really God, but we get the idea. Jesus tells them in verse 32, I tell you the solemn truth, it was not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but my Father who is giving you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from the heaven and gives life to the world. So they said to him, sir, give us this bread all the time. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will never go hungry, and the one who believes in me will never be thirsty. Well, how can Jesus do this? How can Jesus consider himself the bread of life that you need to eat to have true life? True, he is true food and true drink. How is that possible? Is this cannibalism? Uh, what's going on here? Well, it's all evoking Deuteronomy 8.3. So he humbled you by making you hungry and then feeding you with unfamiliar manna. He did this to teach you that humankind cannot live by bread alone, but by everything that comes from Yahweh's mouth. Well, what is it that proceeds in the mouth of Yahweh? It's his words. And who is the word of Yahweh? It is Jesus. And that is how Jesus can be the bread of life. It is the means of sustenance. And the way that we are sustained is in the speaking of God. Because God spoke and he was created, life came forth from the speaking of God. Life comes from the words of God, the way that he has told us to live and how we are to live and how that is embodied in Jesus.
So there's some powerful, profound things going on with speech and speaking that are just not there for even seeing, let alone smelling, tasting, or touching. And the ability to use language is unique to humans in the animal kingdom, and thus likely represents parts of what it means to be specifically made in the image of God. God spoke and jointly participated in relational unity, and mankind can speak and jointly participate in relational unity. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. Now, a lot of times when we talk about human language, we, we have the picture of Babel in mind, and it, it can often sour us on the importance and power of language, because that's where it got confused and we all speak different languages. And yeah, God does confuse human language because of human arrogance there in Genesis 11, 1 and verse 9. But why did God decide he needed to do that? Well, because there would be no end of what man could do with shared language and purpose. And it really underscores the fact that uh, language is the great unifier. Because, you know, can humans use visual cues and forms of touch to communicate? Oh, absolutely, we can. And we have very more recently developed the ability to communicate through written media. Uh, but how much can we well communicate without with touch or visual cues without any verbal prompts? And as we're going to see, literacy has always been downstream from oral communication. Because shared language is the real marvel. It's the ability to com communicate complex thoughts and processes for others to be able to understand. And nothing demonstrates the marvel of shared language, like trying to learn another language. I think one of the best ways that we can look at this is to consider an English example. In English, we have the adjective, which of course modifies a noun and describes the noun in greater detail. And we can, in English, add adjectives all day long before we get to the noun, but they will follow the order of order, of opinion, size, age, shape, color, origin, material, or purpose. And that's opinion, size, age, shape, color, origin, material, purpose. And if you hear or read any variations on that order, it will strange, sound strange or off to you. If somebody uh, will switch a few of those around and talking about, you, know, you talk about a, uh, a small old rock, but an old small rock sounds weird, right? That's because you put size before age. You can think of many other examples, right? But would you even think about that? Have you ever thought about putting adjectives in that order as an English speaker? You haven't given a conscious thought to that at all. In fact, you're probably now sitting there puzzling about the, that fact. That was just listen how that works out. And it's just that it's intuitive. It is how you spoke language. Remember, you've been immersed in the language from your from young age, and you've been going around trying to speak with other people, and you've just kind of just part of the pattern of the language is impressed onto you. And that's how you use it. You only think twice about it. And you can only imagine then what that must sound like to somebody who does not speak English, where all of a sudden they're taught, you have all these adjectives that you can use, but you have to say it in this particular order. And in fact, one of the, the things that we, we like to at least find humorous, which is called English, uh, which is kind of the uh, English as second language, and it creates for funny constructions for those of us who are native English speakers. Um, and one of the things that you can see in English is when people start using adjectives, but they don't use them in that order. Uh, and so we can see that how in English will be hard. And, and thus, when other people, there are other languages, right? Uh, English speakers will struggle with languages, pronominal prefixes or suffixes, because we just don't do that. 
uh, or the intuitive understanding of when and how to use various tenses and moods and things of that nature. So how can people do this? We wonder, especially like people who like don't have much formal education, how can they do that? Well, just like how people with not a lot of formal education still kind of understand how, the order in which you put adjectives. It's just part of the way that human language works, and we just kind of intuitively learn those rules through immersion imitation. That is why they're suggesting that true bi-trilingualism bi comes from people who are exposed to those languages from a very early age and are just raised to speak the language almost in a native way. What's interesting about language is that there can be very colorful local variation that can happen, right? In local dialects, local uh, interesting metaphors and things of that nature. Uh, but yet language can remain consistent enough to be comprehensible over many regions. And so, especially with English today, you know, you can speak in English today in the United States of America, in Britain, in many parts of Europe, Africa, and Asia, and you will be able to be understood by others. And it's a marvelous thing. It really is that we're able to communicate such complexity. And in Romans 10, verse 17, it's very interesting to note, consequently, faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the preached word of Christ. Because as the Hebrews author testified, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, and now has spoken to us in Christ, in Hebrews 1. And the predominant metaphor when it comes to matters of the faith and the way God has communicated to us is in terms of God has spoken and we are to hear. Just as Paul said, faith comes by what is heard. It's not come by what is read. It is not come by what is seen. Paul is using the illustration of what is heard. We have become very reading dominant in our society because of the widespread use of literacy and the widespread use of books and texts and things of that nature. And that is why our understanding tends to be about reading, writing, studying, etc., but for good reason, God has maintained the hearing and speaking paradigm. And none of this is an attempt to diminish or deny the value of what is read, what we can see through reading. Instead, it is coming back and appreciating the fact that God has communicated in a certain way. Uh, first and foremost, it is that all written language is secondary to oral language. What do you mean by that? Oral language comes first. You ever want to talk about how language works? A language was first spoken. People spoke to one another. They heard one another. And later on, they developed signs based on their own imagination or by modifying the signs that somebody else made in order to convey what that language is communicating in written forms that could be, again, appealed to. And the way that written language works, it tends to take its cues from oral language. It is, in fact, only in the past couple thousand years that we can talk of something called standard orthography, where we will write something down, and what we write down uh, may vary in some way, shape, or form from what we pronounce. Uh, around the time of Jesus, most of the languages, if there was a shift in the way something was pronounced, there was a shift in the way it was spelled. What we call silent reading has only become possible after written language developed vowels, spacing, and punctuation. All three were necessary to develop what we call silent reading, or we are just keeping our eyes on a page without using our voice and our ears at all. There's a major misconception floating around regarding Hebrew and other Semitic languages that they do not have vowels. And to suggest that Hebrew or Semitic languages don't have vowels is to have such a complete visual, a a, a understanding language only in terms of what is written down 
uh, it's not even funny. Because they absolutely have vowels. They have to have vowels. Vowels are an important part of any kind of ability for humans to communicate with uh, the voice. Try to read something that just has consonants. You cannot do it. Uh, you cannot read it aloud. There's just nothing you can do with it. The difference is, is that in Hebrew, they did not encode vowel sounds with accompanying letters. Because there was never an intention in the original Hebrew to write down language to be read silently. But the written were basically writing down some letter shapes to provide prompts to the mind for oral communication. And it does work that way. When you have read Hebrew long enough, you subconsciously just kind of know where the vowels are. You don't even need to use the Masoretic pointings. It helps, but you don't need the Masoretic pointings. Uh, Greek did encode vowels with letters. On the other hand, in the days of the New Testament, because of the sake of economy, uh, texts were written without spacing and in columns, which could break up words, which would mean that you'd have like three columns on a piece of papyrus and you'd have like nine letters or something in a column. And if you were halfway through a word in the middle of a column, you would stop from the four back. You would just keep going. So in order to make sense of that, you have to read it aloud. And that's why there was no problem with having it that way, because the expectation was you were reading it aloud. And so even reading to yourself would mean looking at the text, reading it aloud and hearing it. So all the communication is still really oral communication. It's just, is the oral communication being done with or without any kind of written down help or aid to understand what should be spoken? And this is what's behind the idea, in at least some way, when the Word of God is called living and active in Hebrews 4 and verse 12. We can look at some kind of mystical spiritual sense in which the Word is living and active. But the uh, words of God to the prophets and the apostles and their associates are still being spoken when they are spoken aloud. We are still hearing them read out. Words on a page on their own can seem dead, easily dissectable. They have life when they are spoken. So Jesus may no longer be on the earth, and all the other speakers in Scripture may have passed on, but we still hear Moses, we still hear the prophets, we still hear Jesus, Peter, Paul, John, and others, when their words are read aloud, and they can convict yet another generation of the truth of God in Christ. And so it is a great marvel. And so much of our lives are dominated by that fact that we can hear. And we can hear what is spoken. And we can make sense of it. And we can communicate complexity through what is spoken. And that even written language is really all coming downstream from that idea of oral communication. And we can and therefore should hear what God has spoken. And what one of the things God has spoken was in Isaiah 6 and verse 9. And it will be repeated by Jesus and Paul. Go and tell these people, listen continually, but don't understand. Look continually, but don't perceive. Now, Yahweh's words, Isaiah, are a reminder of our frailty and our often self-imposed limitations of our hearing. As we've noted, an important part of our brain function in terms of hearing is not just its ability to understand the sense impressions from the ear, but also to interpret them to focus on or highlight what it deems most important for the moment, and to reduce plenty of other sounds to what we deem as background noise. Now, is it true that our inability to focus on every sound we hear at every moment is a creature limitation? It's a confession of our finitude, uh, and that God certainly can hear all things at all times. However, we don't really look at that as a problem as much as it is, in fact, a grace. Because how could we concentrate or focus on anything if we devoted conscious attention to every sound at every moment. Modern life, especially urban life, would drive us completely insane if we could not become habituated and therefore drown out background noises. 
the very idea of concentration or focus demands a choice. Because if we are concentrating or focusing on one thing, we are by necessity neglecting others. So if we are focusing on a thing or a collection of things, we must not be concentrating or focusing on other things and therefore actively ignoring or neglecting them. And we do this even in human communication. I mean, how many times have we been in trouble with a loved one because they were talking, but you were focusing on their phone and your phone or some other activity and you didn't really pay attention to what was said? In that moment, was it your hearing? Yeah, it was hearing. But did it, did it send the relevant signals to the brain? Absolutely it did. But the brain filtered it out because you were concentrating on something else. And the person is hurt and offended because that relational damage was done. You did not prioritize them over whatever you were focusing on. And as we do that unto fellow human beings, we are tempted to do, and unfortunately often do, before God. In Matthew 13 and verse 22, we are informed about who the thorny soil are. The thorny soil are those who allow the cares of the world and desire for gain to choke out the word. In other terms, a person who focuses so much on matters of this world or getting money that he or she cannot concentrate or focus on what God is saying. In Ezekiel 3, 4-7, through 7, uh, Yahweh says to Ezekiel, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. For you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech and difficult language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many peoples of unintelligible speech or difficult language, whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I had sent them you to them, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel unwilling to listen to you, because they are not willing to listen to me. For the whole house of Israel is hard-headed and hard-hearted. And thus Yahweh calls Ezekiel, speaks to him in a similar way as to Isaiah, that the people of God, would, they would speak to in words they could cognitively process, but the words would be dismissed, ignored, or rejected. Now, why would the people of God not hear the words of the prophets? Well, it offended their understanding of themselves and their theological presuppositions. It would demand them to make changes that would be very uncomfortable for them. That they were, in fact, not the good guys of the story, but in fact, quite bad. The way that they assumed God worked with them is not the way that God worked them, and it was very unsettling. The prospect that God could abandon Jerusalem to his enemies would be unthinkable, mostly because of what it said about what God, who God was and what it was about. One of those things that, looking back, you could see where it was coming from, but in the moment, it would have been considered quite impossible to imagine. And every successive generation has had something like that. It's very much something that happens over and over again. Because the ability to concentrate and focus allows us to function. But there is a dark side to it, because we can hear, but not understand, especially when it comes to the words of God. This is how some will cry out, Lord, Lord, but they will not receive entrance, because they did not do the will of the Father in Matthew 7, 21-23. Now, our sense of hearing might not be as strong as our sense of sight, but it's profound, powerful, and marvelous. We can enjoy and participate in music, which is a glimpse of pericritic relational unity. We can speak and hear, sharing in the very means by which God created all things. But we also can distort and or ignore what God has been telling us, and to do that to our own harm. And thus may we hear and heed the words of God in Christ of the Spirit and obtain the resurrection of life in him. We're so glad that you've joined us today. I'm Ethan. I work at the Venice Church of Christ. We are uh, Disciples Making Disciples in Los Angeles. We'd love to be of further service and encouragement to you. If you have any questions or comments about anything that we've talked about in terms of our hearing, please let us know in the comments. Continue our conversation. And if we can be of any further service, please reach out to us at VentureToChrist.org. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Threads, Twitter, and YouTube. 
And may the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.